now come to chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 today. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And I want to give us just a, a brief overview of kind of where we're at right now, what all is going on. In our passage today, we are going to be looking at a very familiar story, but, um, but I want to uh, take a moment and just think about, again, where we're at. If you were here last week, uh, you remember that we looked at uh, the story of Jesus and blind Bartimaeus, the healing of this man who was blind and, and had no other choice, no other option but to cry out in his blindness, in his despair, in his poverty, uh, cry out to the Lord, uh, said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this amazing story that took place at the city gate in Jericho as Jesus, uh, making his way to Jerusalem, is now passing through Jericho. So we see last week he was making his way into Jericho. Jericho, uh, I'll remind you, is only about 17 miles away from Jerusalem. So we're getting very close to Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem, this great moment, this, this kind of climax of Jesus' ministry as his time here on earth is beginning to draw to an end. And we see here now as he is making his way through Jericho, again, as I said last week, it's, it's amazing the way the gospel writers, uh, compelled by the Holy Spirit, take this, this rather ordinary, this rather mundane, this insignificant story of blind Bartimaeus and shines the spotlight of divine revelation on this insignificant man, this nobody, this outcast. And once again, mind you, later in this chapter, Jesus will be entering Jerusalem for the last time. And yet, now, just a mere few verses away, we have, again, the spotlight of divine revelation being shined off of Jerusalem, off of uh, the, the grand mission that Jesus is on, though he is still on that mission, and it is now brought to a, a point, uh, honed in, zeroed in on this man named Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. So we're going to read that text. The word of God says this. He, that being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was, a sm he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray today as we study your word that you would prove yourself to be gracious, that you would prove yourself to be merciful, that you would prove yourself uh, uh, to be all that you have promised us that you are in your word. And as we see today the story of Zacchaeus, 
Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of the gospel revealed in this passage. Open our eyes to the truth of what it is that you have done on behalf of wretched sinners, how you have moved, how you have worked to seek and save the lost. I pray, Lord, as I uh, deliver this sermon, that you would be gracious to me and that you would uh, bless the, the effort and the time that has gone into this sermon, but that ultimately, Lord, you would do more with it uh, than I on my own could ever do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, as we look at this passage, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, it's an extremely familiar passage to anyone who has grown up in church. It is one of the most familiar Bible stories of the New Testament that has ever been told. In fact, songs have been written about it, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he, right? We know the song. We know the story. Most of us do. And it would be really easy to look at this passage, as many people have, and to see it primarily as a story about a man's efforts and the work that this man, Zacchaeus, applied in order to meet Jesus. Too often, Zacchaeus takes up the primary role of this story rather than Christ. What I want for us to see in this passage is that, as the final sentence of our passage today would indicate, this story is really all about the work and effort of Jesus to seek and to save Zacchaeus as he does all of the elect, as he does all of his children. For this is the main point of our text. This is the main point of this text, and really, in a way, it's the main point of all four Gospels in the New Testament. As verse 10 lays it out for us, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This concluding verse in our passage today, in verse 10, really is the, the summary idea, the summary point of why we are given the Gospels and really the New Testament as a whole. That is, when we see the life of Jesus on display, laid out for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we are seeing is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, God in flesh, who has come not to be a great example, not to be a great moral teacher, but he has come because we are lost and we need a Savior. That is why. And he has come to be that Savior. He has come to seek and to save the lost. Yes, Jesus said some profound things here on earth. Yes, we see the example of Jesus, and we ought to imitate that. Absolutely. But if that's all that we take from Scripture, is Jesus the great moral teacher or Jesus the great example, we have missed the gospel. We have missed our need of the gospel. We have missed what Jesus actually came to do, which was to seek and to save the lost. This title in, in verse 10, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, this title, is used throughout the book of Luke in multiple places, and it points us to the humanity of Jesus, yes, that Jesus was born in human flesh. He was, in fact, the Son of Man in that respect. But more importantly, it is a reference to the title for the Messiah used in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. The, the Messiah, the, the title that was given to the one who would have dominion over all things, as we see in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom 
one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus demonstrates and flexes this dominion in this story as he exercises his authority, his power, even over the hearts of man to save those whom the Father has given him. Jesus, the Son of Man, was on mission here on earth. He was on mission both to go to the cross, but even in this story, he had a mission in Jericho, a mission that went even deeper than we realized, even deeper than, than the people who were following him realized. He was on mission even right now to seek and save this lost man, Zacchaeus. For indeed, Zacchaeus was the target of Jesus at this time. Point number one of our sermon today is the target. In verses one through four, we see that Zacchaeus was indeed targeted by Jesus. Luke tells us some important details about Zacchaeus. Uh, he tells us that he was a tax collector. Not only that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, but he says that he was the chief tax collector. In fact, this is a title that's only used here in the New Testament. It's not something we see very often. And he was a very successful chief tax collector, for he goes on to tell us that he was rich. And I, I probably don't need to go into too much detail about tax collectors, as in several previous sermons, we've gone into detail about why these people were indeed hated by the Jews. Tax collectors were, were some of the most despised people by Jews. They were in a category, the same kind of category as prostitutes and of murderers and the most terrible people you can think of, tax collectors were right there with them. Because these tax collectors, these men, these were Jewish men who were basically viewed as traitors to their own people because they were working for the Roman government. They were working to take money from the people and usually extorting the people to get more money so that they could have it in order to give it to the Roman government. This people who were exercising an occupation over the Jewish people. So in other words, this man, not only being a tax collector, but being a chief tax collector, was the worst of the worst in the people's eyes. He was, he was like lower than dirt in their eyes. No one could possibly be worse than this guy, Zacchaeus, who was chief of the tax collectors. But as true as this was, Zacchaeus still knew of Jesus and he had a desire to see him. Which was no big surprise. By this time, Jesus' fame had spread all throughout the land. He was very well known. Everyone had heard of the, the things that he was, he was doing, the healings that he had done, the raising of Lazarus just a, a short time earlier. In fact, there was a whole crowd that was following him, right? Everyone wanted to see Jesus. Everyone wanted to know about this guy. Everyone was curious. But not everyone had the same desire to see him that was as strong as Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, is so strong, his desire was so strong to see Jesus that he did something really weird, as we see in verse 4. Because he was so short, because the crowd was so big, verse 4 says, he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass this way. This was a really weird thing for Zacchaeus to do. Not only was it a weird thing, it was an undignified thing to do. This man of prestige, now climbing a tree. I don't know if anyone in here was ever like into climbing trees whenever they were young. Robert, his hand shot up. Robert, Randy, in your adult life, have you ever climbed a tree? Yeah. I bet you looked really weird when you were doing it, didn't you? Yeah. Most of us in here have not been climbing trees in our adult life because it's weird, okay? It's weird as an adult, as a grown person to go and climb a tree. I'm just saying it like it is. 
If you are into tree climbing, I'm sorry, but it's weird. But the point is that, that Zacchaeus was willing to do this weird thing. He was willing to bring about even a sense of disgrace and shame and embarrassment, or at least risk it, uh, in order to catch a glimpse of Jesus. This is the point at which we can really put our theology to work in helping us understand what's going on here. Because we, we think about the question we ask, ought to ask, why was it that Zacchaeus was so fervently trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus? Why was it that he was willing to do something so weird, so undignified in order just to see this man who was doing these things, in order just to see this guy as he walked by? That was his only intention, was just to see Jesus walking by. What was it that set him apart from the rest of the crowd then, that he would do this weird thing, and that he would go to such great lengths in order to catch a glimpse of Jesus? And when we understand the way in which it is that the Lord draws sinners, we begin to understand what's taking place in this man's life. Because, as we've already said, the Lord has targeted this man. Long before Jesus had made his way into Jericho, Zacchaeus had been targeted by God. Zacchaeus was being called to Jesus. The Lord had targeted him and is drawing him to himself, even in this passage. Because what was it that would motivate him to do this, unlike the, all these other people? It was not that Zacchaeus was so, uh, so smart and so just cunning that Jesus was like, oh yeah, look at this guy up in the tree. He's a smart guy. No, that wasn't it. The Holy Spirit was already working in the heart, already working in the life of Zacchaeus, drawing him to Christ. That's what's happening. What's happening here is the wooing of a sinner's heart, the drawing of the Holy Spirit, the calling of God to bring this man into the presence of Christ. Even this is a work of God, not a work of Zacchaeus. What is Zacchaeus going to say about this event if you get to heaven and ask him, Zacchaeus, what motivated you to do that? That was real, like, why'd you do that? Is Zacchaeus going to go, well, you know, all those other fools there didn't think about climbing a tree, but, you know, this guy, Zacchaeus, I'm a genius, and I climbed the tree just because I'm so smart like that. No, I would wager Zacchaeus, like all of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ, would say it was entirely a work of God. I mean, how many testimonies of those who have been saved by God have we heard where they, we, we hear things like, I don't even know what motiva motivated me to go into that church that day. I don't know what motivated me to stop and talk to that guy that day. I don't know what it was that motivated me to ask my friend about his faith that day. More often than not, that is the case, and we come to the conclusion that it was God's drawing. It was entirely a work of God. No one in this place, no one who's ever been saved by God, stands up boldly and proudly and says, it was my effort that got me to see Jesus. It was my effort that brought about my salvation. It was my effort that introduced me to the grace of God. No one in here would say that. No one is ever going to say that who, is, uh, who belongs to Christ. And the same is true of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, as we see him going to these great lengths, is demonstrating what is taking place in his heart, what we can't see, but what God is already doing to bring this man into position, to bring this man into contact with Christ. It is a work of the Holy Spirit on his heart. And then we see the shocking encounter, point number two, in verses five and six. And it really was a shocking encounter, especially for Zacchaeus. It says in verses five and six, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, 
Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus was already a wee little man, as we know. That's how the song goes. That's how the story goes. But when Jesus looked directly at him and began speaking to him, calling him by name, I bet that at least for a second, he wished he was even smaller. His plan to get in in a place in order to get a look at Jesus worked far better than he could have ever imagined. He had no intention of carrying on a conversation with this man. In fact, more than likely, he was looking to avoid uh, interaction with others, avoid attention. After all, he was in a tree. It's a really weird place to be. Think about the shock that must have come across him whenever Jesus looks up in that tree and calls him by name. And the heads of everyone in the crowd goes, whoosh, and immediately focus on Zacchaeus up in the tree. That would have been really, really awkward, I imagine. It would have been a shock, no doubt. And then Jesus did something and said something that most of us today would consider to be really rude if someone did this to us. What did Jesus do? He said, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus straight up invites himself to this guy's house. I mean, not even like, hey, can I come over tomorrow? Can I come over in a few hours? He said, come down and take me to your house today, right now. Let's go. If we did that to like other people, we probably would not have very many friends anymore. People would be like, man, that, that didn't, he's always invite himself over. Like, it used to be, I think, a thing of the past, the, the pop-in, right, where you would just pop into someone's house and be like, oh, hey, I was just in the neighborhood, stop by. But today, we don't do that, right? It would be considered rude to do that, to just drop in on somebody, which I think we should change. I think that should change, especially in the life of the church. I think it should be expected that if you are ever in the neighborhood of someone or have time to chill and hang out, you just stop into their house and then say, man, this place is a wreck. No, I'm kidding. But anyway, I do think that that should be the case for us. But this is what Jesus does. He does something that's not the norm. You don't invite yourself into someone's house like that day, that moment. And this looks a lot different than what most people think of when they think of how Jesus saves people, doesn't it? I think most people, when they think of Jesus saving someone, they think that he's standing outside the door of their heart, that he's knocking, that he's waiting patiently for them to choose to open the door to let him in, right? So often that's what people think of. People often misquote Revelation 3.20 in reference to this. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will eat with him and he with me. And people use this verse, they hear it and they say, Oh, the Lord is just waiting for you to open the door. He's knocking. It's up to you to let him in if you want to be saved. The problem is Revelation 3.20 is not a verse about salvation. It is a letter to a church that is lukewarm, and he's saying the problem is I'm standing here knocking, and there's not a Christian in this church. That's the problem. He's not writing this uh, passage in Revelation 3.20 to say, it's up to you to let me in to be saved. If that were the case, Jesus would be standing at the door of our hearts forever and ever and ever and would never be allowed to enter. If it were up to us to allow Jesus to save us, to allow Jesus to come in, He would not happen. Why? Because human beings have a natural inclination toward a hatred of God. We are his enemies by nature, by birth. 
All of us are born into sin. All of us, as David says, are conceived in iniquity. Every single one of us. Actually, our assurance of grace today was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ian, or whoever's in the back, go ahead and throw it up on the screen. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, check this out, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse makes clear to us what is true of those of us who are separated from Christ. The state that all of us before Christ are in. We are following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were by nature children of wrath. That was our nature. We did not have an inclination toward God, but against God. And then as we continue on through the passage, what, we, what do we see? Do we say, we, by his help, became alive together with Christ? No, it says he made us alive together with Christ. Did we work to let him in in order that we might be raised up? No, it says he raises us up. He raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. Overwhelmingly, the, the language of salvation is a work that God does in us from beginning to end. And that if we are left to our own devices, we will reject Christ every time. Him standing at the door and knocking is not going to be enough. He must invite himself in. He must enter us by his will according to his purposes. And when God determines to save someone, he does not wait for them to invite him in. He invites himself in. This is true of Zacchaeus's house, but it's also true of Zacchaeus's heart, as it is with the heart of everyone who has been changed by the gospel. God already, God was already at work in the heart of Zacchaeus to bring him to this point. Now Jesus simply finished him off. This is the case with all of us, that each and every one of us before Christ were bent towards, had a nature of wrath, a nature of anger and disdain for God. We were an enemy of God. It was only because of his ability and his willingness and his grace to overpower our nature, to overpower our will, in order that he would save us. And some people have a really hard time with this because they think, well, well then what about people who don't want to be saved? Is anyone in here who has been saved, did they not want to be saved? No. Every single one of us, now that we are saved, are thankful that we are saved. No one is kicking and screaming here in this church today. 
No one who has been overcome by the irresistible grace of Christ Jesus is sad about it, is mad about it. No one is saying, I feel like you took away my choice, God. Why didn't I have the choice to, to come to you, the choice to accept or deny you, decline you? The reason is we would choose to decline him every time if left to our own devices. Praise God he doesn't leave it to that. Praise God he enters in by his own will. He invites himself into our hearts. Point number three is the scandal afterwards. In verse seven, we see the response of the crowd. It says, and when they saw it, they being the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Notice the response of the people to Jesus is going into this man's house. The text says that they all grumbled. Not just the Jewish, Jewish elites like we have seen in other times when the, the Pharisees and the religious elites of the day were really upset about something Jesus was doing. No, in this case, everyone was grumbling. All the crowd had a negative reaction to what Jesus was doing. This again demonstrates just how hated this man Zacchaeus is. That every single person in this crowd, when he said the name Zacchaeus and looked up in that tree, they all knew who he was. They all knew how wicked he was. They all knew that he was a sinner. And that was their complaint. That he was the guest of a sinner. John MacArthur points out that this, this word sinner here is a category of person. This is not just stating the fact that he has made a mistake or that he has done something wrong. Even the Jews recognize that all people have done some things wrong. But this category, this description of a sinner was a category description to say he is the worst of the worst. He is a wretched. He is in a category with the worst of people. He is a sinner. In the eyes of the crowd, Jesus was making himself unclean by going and eating with this man and being the guest of this man. He was defiling himself by going into this terrible man, this wicked sinner's home. But Jesus didn't shy away. He wasn't ashamed to associate with this man, Zacchaeus. In fact, he had a purpose for this man. His meeting with this man was not happenstance. It was ordained by God that Zacchaeus would be saved by Jesus this day. And so Jesus went in without hesitation. This gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? It should. I know that it does me. It gives me a lot of hope because I know what category I belong in. I know that the category of sinner, wretched, the same with the worst of the worst, the worst tax collector, the worst prostitutes, the murderers, the heathens, the pagans. That's the category I know that I belong in. Because I know my heart, I know my thoughts, I know my flesh. What I deserve is to have Jesus pass right by me and for me to not even get a glimpse of him. For him to keep on moving. Don't waste time on me. I am a sinner in the worst of categories. Leave me in my misery and hope. I know that's what I deserve. But this is the beauty of the gospel. Because if we're all honest, we know that that's all of us. We are all in the same category as this wretched sinner. And that's not what Jesus has done. He didn't pass him by. He didn't leave him to his own misery and his own despair and his own destruction. He looks at people in this category and he chooses to save them. The joy that Zacchaeus experienced in verse 6 
is ours also when it says that he came down and received him joyfully. But the crowd failed to see it this way. They still did not see the Messiah. They still did not see Jesus as the tender savior of wicked outcasts. Despite all that they had seen, despite everything that they had seen of Jesus, that they had heard him say, they still failed to understand. They were so steeped in their Jewish religious tradition, their legalism, that they missed the beautiful truth of who Jesus was. That he came to seek and save the lost, the worst among us. And this crowd really gives us a pretty good picture of, I think, many people today who are interested in Jesus. Because the whole world is interested in Jesus almost, right? I mean, there's been documentary after documentary after TV show after TV show about Jesus. There has been books and books filled with, with stories and, and talks and discussion about who Jesus is. In fact, if you go to other countries, when we were in Nepal, they knew about Jesus, a lot of them, and they were like, oh yeah, Jesus is cool, we like Jesus. But there's a difference between liking Jesus, caring about Jesus, being interested or curious about Jesus, and actually being saved by Jesus. This whole crowd, this giant crowd of people, the vast majority of them, were simply curious. They were simply interested in Jesus, but they had not truly been changed. They failed to see that he was the Savior. To them, he, they were, he was simply the good teacher. He was simply the good example. He was simply an interesting guy to follow, and nothing more. But not true of Zacchaeus. And point number four is we see Zacchaeus was a new man at this point and was experiencing new life. New man and new life. And verses 8 through 10, we see, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. What happened next in the story is truly the product of a heart that had been changed by Christ. The fact that Zacchaeus stood up and said, I'm going to give half of what I have away to the poor, and then on top of that, with the other half that I have left, I'm going to use it to pay back all those who I have defrauded. And he was admitting that he had defrauded people. This is how he got his wealth. And, you know, Jewish law would indicate that you, if you had stolen something from someone, you were to repay them double, except for in the most extreme circumstances. You were to pay them double. Zacchaeus said, I'm going to pay fourfold, four times the amount that I defrauded. This was truly a man that was uh, uh, born again, that was changed from the inside out. And I want us to contrast what we see here in Zacchaeus. This man who, after having been saved by Christ, says, of his own accord, I am going to give away half of my goods, half of my money, half of my wealth, half of the things that I own to the poor, and then with the rest of what I have, I'm going to pay back everyone who I have defrauded fourfold. This was going to ruin him financially. It was going to actually annihilate his finances. The Honestly, if after the story, after all this was done, he probably couldn't be described as the way he was at the beginning, which was as one who was rich. 
But note the contrast between Zacchaeus here and the rich man from the previous chapter, the rich young ruler. When Jesus asked the rich young, when the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, go, take all that you have, sell it and give it to the poor. And the rich man did what? Did he do it? No. He hung his head in shame and left because he was very rich. His wealth meant more to him than anything else. His wealth was of primary importance to him. He was still bound by the law. As Jesus told him what to do, he said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus wasn't saying that that was the way in which you're going to be saved. But in asking him this, Jesus demonstrated that this man was still bound by the law, bound to a works-based system. And in a works-based system, even in doing everything that you can possibly do, it will never be enough. But for one like Zacchaeus, who has had a change of heart, who has been given new life, unsolicited, he says, I'm going to give away everything I have. That which the rich young ruler was unwilling to do, Zacchaeus does without hesitation. This generosity to go and give away all that he has, to just get rid of it, to renounce his wealth, to renounce his stuff, his money, his riches. It's not a means of redemption. Zacchaeus was not saved because he took everything he had and gave it away, but it is evidence of redemption in his life. It is evidence of the fact that he is not who he was. Why is it that Zacchaeus joyfully gave away his fortunes? It's because he had found something greater. He had made a particular life choice when he became a tax collector. When he chose to become a tax collector, he knew what he was gaining and he knew what he was giving up. There was no secret about, uh, about the fact that he would be hated by the people. There was likely an understanding that he knew if he took this job, he would be rich, but he would be hated by many. And he made a particular life choice when he became a tax collector. He chose riches, thinking that they would satisfy him. He undoubtedly knew that this would mean he'd be hated by his countrymen, but he had made riches his God. And he had likely come to a point now where he had been let down by his God. He had been let down by the God of wealth, the God of riches, the God of stuff. And this is where he had put all his chips. He had gone all in on wealth. And he was likely feeling let down at this point. And when the one true God sought Zacchaeus and took the place of his idol of wealth, Zacchaeus began to see money in the correct light. He began to see it in a new light. He saw the value of his riches as insignificant compared to the value of knowing and obeying and worshiping Christ. It is Christ's seeking, his calling, that changes the way of sinners. What credit does this tax collector get for what's taken place inside of him? None. He gets no credit for what has taken place inside of him. His desire to see Jesus was a work of God to draw him. His position in the tree was a divine placement. And his day with the Savior was by sovereign design. The grace on display in this story is an irresistible grace. One that overcomes even the will, even the hearts of men. For Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
You see, when God sets out to seek and to save a lost person, he does it. When he sets his crosshairs, when he sets you in his target, he will save. Every single time. No purpose of his can be thwarted. Here's the bottom line. God has power and authority over all things and over all people. God called the universe into existence and it was so. Jesus called Lazarus from the grave and immediately he came out. The Holy Spirit calls dead hearts to life and immediately they are born again. Despite the sinful will, despite the disposition that despises God and his beauty, he draws sinners to himself and supernaturally overcomes their sinfulness, overcomes their nature, overcomes their desires and their will in order to save them. And he does so without any help, without any effort put in by the sinner. Nothing that a sinner does has a single ounce of impact in his saving. It is entirely a work of God. It is simply his irresistible grace. Jesus did not come to try to seek and to try to save the lost. Those whom the Lord seeks, the Lord saves. Particularly those rightly identified as Zacchaeus was and as I am and as we all are as sinners. Why is this truth so important for us to recognize? Why is it so important for us to realize that Jesus is the seeker and the saver of lost people, that he came seeking those whom he was sent to save? Because of Romans 3. What do we see in Romans 3? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. No one understand, no one what? Seeks for God. No one. Unless God seeks us out and saves us, we will not be saved. Praise God that he tells us in his word that he does, in fact, seek and save the lost. This reality has at least two effects on us, and it should here today. First of all, it is an antidote to pride. Lest you think that you are somehow good, righteous, that somehow uh, you impressed God in order that he might save you, that you were smart enough to climb the right tree in order to get in his eyesight, in order to manipulate him to save you, that he saw something good in you. No, nope. Anything good in you is wrought by the Holy Spirit. So this is an antidote to pride. And second, this gives hope to the hopeless and it gives all glory to God. We are utterly without hope in this world without hope of a savior. Like Zacchaeus, there are tons of people who have put all their chips on the wrong bet. They have bet on their wealth to make them satisfied. They have bet on their uh, fame to make them satisfied. Some people even put their bet on their family to make them satisfied. And none of those things are good enough. All of those things will let us down. Even the most wonderful of common grace that you can think of that God has given us in this life will let you down and will leave you without hope. Only a God who seeks and saves the lost can bring us hope. That is our only hope in this world, is a God who is going to do the work necessary to save wretched sinners. And ultimately, all the glory goes to him. 
If you're here in this place today and you have been saved by the grace of God, give glory to God. How much of it was your doing? How much credit do you deserve? Do you deserve a pat on the back for your salvation? No. Who does? God does. So today as we close, I would encourage you as we sing our last song, as we take of the Lord's Supper, and as you go out from this place, that you would leave this place today rejoicing for the God who has sought you and has saved you a sinner. Let's pray. God, what can we do but give you thanks? Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, that you have sought and saved me. I see the, the sinfulness of Zacchaeus. I see the sinfulness of murderers in the Bible, the thief on the cross. Lord, I see all of these stories of people who are the worst of the worst, and I know that I'm right there in that lot. And Lord, I thank you that you have chosen to enter into the filth, enter into the dirt and the disgust and the, the wickedness in order to, to save me, in order to breathe life back into my lungs. Lord, I thank you that you have chosen to do the work of saving us by your grace, by drawing us to yourself supernaturally, beyond what we could ever do by our own inclination in order to save a people for yourself. And for that today, Lord, we come to worship you and to thank you and to give you praise for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.